Happy Sabbath. I'm going to read a story that's in Luke 12, uh, verses 13 to 21. It's the story of the greedy farmer. Someone out of the crowd said, Teacher, order my brother to give me a fair share of the family inheritance. He replied, Mister, what makes you think it's any of my business to be a judge or mediator for you? Speaking to the people, he went on, Take care, protect yourself against the least bit of greed. Life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. Then he told them this story. The farm, the farm of a certain rich man produced a terrific crop. He talked to himself, what can I do? My barn isn't big enough for this harvest. Then he said, here's what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I will gather in all my grains and goods, and I will say to myself, self, you've done well. You've got it made and can now retire. Take it easy and have the time of your life. Just then, God's, uh, God showed up and said, Fool, tonight you will die, and your barn full of goods, who gets it? That's what happens when you fill your barns with self and not with God. So Luke 12, 13 to 21 is a story about wealth, and it's not a story about wealth. Like the misquoted verse in 1 Timothy, it's not uh, that money is the root of all evil, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. This is our story, um, but this is our story about our relationship with wealth, about our responsibilities and attitudes towards taking and giving. Wealth is one of those topics that we find it very difficult to talk about. Our culture has foolishly declared that uh, conversations about excess are taboo. And in fact, uh, when I, I haven't really heard this sermon preached on before, this particular topic. Uh, when I've interviewed friends, you know, leading up to the sermon, I ask them, do you know the parable of the rich fool? And they go, you mean the rich young ruler? I go, nope, different one, rich fool. So hopefully this is something new and something fresh for you today. So, got to get a couple of things straight. I'm not here today to tell you how to spend your money. But Jesus' parable would like to change your views of wealth. Sure, we love the stuff. For the fact of the matter is that no one really lives a life untouched from money and the concerns of money. Do we have enough? Do we have too much? How does it relate to our faith? How do we teach our children about the values of wealth? especially when our culture offers such woefully inadequate advice to address our concerns. Jesus doesn't want to just leave us hanging there. He knows that uh, there's a positive function to money and possessions. Jesus knows that money can also make us or break us. We spend a very large percentage of our time chasing after the stuff. In one sense, financial wealth uh, fulfills all our basic earthly requirements. But have we fallen for the money trap? Do we look to money to satisfy more than is realistically possible? So Jesus challenges us and asks us some serious questions about money. What is the role of money? Where does wealth come from? What does my attitude about wealth reveal about me personally? 
And how does wealth and blessings communicate about God's character? So the sermon today is not some topical expose of everything that the Bible has to say about wealth. Instead, we're actually going to do a little bit of exegesis together. We're going to take a look at those 10 short verses that Evelyn read out for us, Luke, 13, sorry, Luke 14, 13 to 21, to see what Jesus has to say about man's relationship with wealth. But before we do that, I'd like to give you a little bit of context of where this verse is falling. So Jesus' authority as the people's rabbi, the people's appointed rabbi, is really starting to take momentum. And in public forums, Jesus is starting to become wildly vocal about his opinion on the hypocrisy of Pharisees. And, and this is really starting to escalate the Jesus revolution. In fact, when Jesus was in a a place, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in um, something that he might say. Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands gathered and they were trampling all over each other. So people caught up in this Jesus revolutionary movement were actually starting to become fearful for their lives. The masses wanted to know if Jesus was the kind of authentic rabbi that they could trust. Jesus spelled out the galactic consequences of publicly declaring him as the son of man. In fact, Jesus was in the middle of encouraging his disciples to confess even when they're under a state of duress. When he's interrupted by this one man from the crowd who wanted Jesus to settle a financial dispute between siblings. So the verse reads, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Now, the man doesn't simply just invite Jesus to intervene in his misfortune. Instead, he demands Jesus to enforce an outcome in his favor. Now, this may have been a very legitimate injustice. But why would someone air their family dirty laundry in front of thousands of people, which is where they are right now? So, a couple of hypotheses. Um, Maybe his brother was in the audience and he wanted to publicly challenge him to do the right thing. Or maybe he just wanted to know whether Jesus was truly interested in the everyday dilemmas of life. Or maybe he wanted to test Jesus to see what kind of rabbi he really was. So it was actually quite customary for a rabbi to to mediate in everyday disputes. In fact, there was a defined protocol that rabbis would follow in a situation like this. In the Jewish oral tradition, there were laws about inheritance. So for a situation like this, the eldest brother within the family would receive a double portion of the assets. Therefore, the typical rabbinical questions that we would expect Jesus to ask in a situation like this might be something like, so what was the extent of your father's wealth? Um, How many sons did your father have? Uh, Were they all from the same mother? And, and what's your position in the 
you know, in the, the sons? Are you the firstborn, the secondborn? So this is the type of question, the investigation you would need to require to actually truly resolve this matter. At first glance, Jesus' answer seems to really lack authority, certainly the type of authority that the crowd were looking for in their revolutionary leader. Jesus responded and said, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbiter over you? So you're like, well, what does that mean? There's several things that Jesus could be saying here. He could be saying, I don't have the power to judge or arbitrate on your behalf. But if he said that, that's not really kind of the leadership or authority that was going to propel this Jesus movement. Or he could have said, look, mate, I don't deal with petty, insignificant issues like this. I've got bigger issues to deal with. I'm looking after the Pharisees and the Romans right now. Or he could have just asked this question. Who do you say that I am? That I might be empowered to be your arbitrator. Now, the reason I tend to believe that it might be this third one is the fact that this kind of fits into the other teachings that Jesus was doing leading up to this point. Teachings to his disciples about confessing who he was or who they said he was, confessing him as the Son of Man. So by refusing to enter into this family squabble, Jesus instead uses the situation as an opportunity to teach about the seductions of wealth. Jesus said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. What do you mean one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions? I'm told that he who dies with the most toys wins. Surely a successful person is going to have something to show for their efforts. Here Jesus issues his first warning for the passage. Now there's two key words that we need to keep our eye out for here, and that is greed and abundance. So, greed, definition, dictionary definition, the intense and selfish desire for something. And here, Jesus suggests that there are many things that we can have intense, selfish desires for. Abundance. Now, if I thought, what does abundance mean? I guess it means plenty of something, you know, heaps. But the Greek word here is a little bit more specific. Per isos to be in excess, superabound. So it's this position of having excess. So this word excess actually reminds me of a, a favourite song of mine. Um, it's a sw- song by Switchfoot, a- American Dream. And some of the lyrics go like this. When success is equated with excess, the ambition for excess wrecks us. As the top of mind becomes the bottom line when success is equated with excess. So this is interesting, not because only because of the play of words, but because we kind of know it's true. That we feel like we have an element of success when we have more than we need. At this point, Jesus is warning his audience about the selfish desire for abundance and the fact that it can be dangerous. 
and suggests that there is more to life than mass accumulation of possessions. Maybe there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. But Jesus wants to take the message deeper by challenging them, challenging their worldview. In good pedagogy fashion, Jesus actually tells them a parable that's actually very similar to some other stories that they would know from the Torah as they were growing up. So the parable that Jesus tells them is this. The land of a rich man produces abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. He said to them, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and put up bigger, larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. So in interpreting this first part of the parable, it's actually quite critical to assess carefully what the farmer's error actually is. He's not portrayed as being wicked. That is, he hasn't gained his wealth illegally or he hasn't taken advantage of others to obtain his wealth. Furthermore, he's not actually even particularly portrayed as greedy. Instead, he seems to be somewhat surprised at his good fortune and he makes what appears to be some very reasonable plans to to reap and store his abundant harvest. So up until this point, to a Jewish audience, this story actually sounds very similar to the story of Joseph and his interpretation of Pharaoh's dream found in Genesis 41. The dream featured there is where the Pharaoh saw uh, seven sleek fat cows who ate seven ugly skinny scorn cows. Quirky, I know, but that's what his dream was. And that was to be followed by a dream about seven ears of plump corn grain that ate seven ears of scorched damaged grain from the eastern winds. So in this Old Testament story, Joseph's advice to store up today's abundance in preparation for years of famine that were ahead is praised as absolute divine wisdom acting on behalf of the people. But in Jesus' parable, it seems counterintuitive where Joseph is being praised for storing up this abundance. For some reason, the farmer's being dissed for it. So what is wrong? What's wrong with building larger barns and to store away some of today's bounty for a potentially leaner tomorrow? At first, we might say nothing, except for two things. First note, the farmer's constant focus throughout his conversation with himself. He says, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, what? Who refers to themselves as soul? So this relentless use of the first person pronoun, I and my, portray a particular preoccupation with self. There is no thought of using the abundance to help others. 
There's no expression of gratitude for the good fortune that he'd had, realized. And there's no acknowledgement of God at all. The farmer has fallen prey to worshipping the most popular gods. The unholy trinity of me, myself and I. So this leads to his next mistake and probably most likely caused yeah, causal effect. Um, he is not foolish because he has made provision for the future. He is foolish because he believes that by his wealth he can secure his own future. And the reason we get this idea is, is a lot of I, 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 my, 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 and then a switch in the word to soul. So he believes that by referring, by, by referring to the word soul, that he believes that his mortality has been made secure eternally because of this wealth that he possesses. Now, this is not a new concept. In fact, the concept comes from ancient Egypt. The idea that when famines come, people die. Therefore, as long as you have food, you don't die, right? For this very reason, the ancient pharaohs stored up food um, in their burial chambers so that they would have sufficient provisions to see them through in the, in the afterlife. Jesus' parable alludes to the fact that there is an element to our mortality that includes more than just our physical lives. Just because you, ha- just because you have food doesn't mean you're not going to die. So, regardless of our technological advances over the decades, no matter what our intellectual prowess or cultural achievements have been, each of us, along with the whole rest of the human race, remains contingent, vulnerable, fragile beings. Human life, for this reason, is fraught with uncertainty and insecurity. And perhaps for this reason, we are tempted to strive for a measure of security and control over something. Even if it is just control over the whims of life through our own efforts and accomplishments. So another law in Jewish oral tradition, which can also be firmly found in the Torah, is man's responsibility when receiving blessing. There are several stories in the Bible where God seems to channel blessing through an individual that is meant to benefit society at large. Some examples of this have been, say, when other farmers have had really good harvests and God has either directly or indirectly told them to leave some of the harvest behind so that the poorer community members can harvest the grain themselves free of charge. It seems that although God may pour out his blessings in excess on one individual, the wealth of this blessing is to be shared amongst many and is not to be stored in excess for only just a few individuals. It's actually on account of this type of attitude that Jesus offers the following rebuke. And this is Jesus' second warning. But God said to him, you fool, 
This very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it will be with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. So the ironic thing here is, within the Jewish traditional law, it was the person who receives blessing, um, their job to actually pass on some of that wealth. And what we do here in this rich fool scenario, he hasn't done that. He hasn't passed on the wealth. Um, and ironically, what God has called out, well, if you die to night power, they're going to get it anyway. So what's the point of holding it back now? So the farmer is called fool, neither because of his wealth nor his ambition but rather because he accords infinite things with so finite things with infinite value he has tried to insulate himself from fate and fortune through productive farming and adequate finances and he's come up empty he has everything that he believes he believes he'll ever need yet in the end which happened to be that very night it proves inadequate. Most of us have experienced the extremes that Jesus is calling out here, particularly when we go through periods of financial uncertainty. We swing from the flawed belief that if we can just earn, just make or buy a little more, that we will be okay. To the crushing disappointment that when the new car or laptop or sneakers fail to transform our circumstances. Nonetheless, the false promise that, that we can meet our deepest needs materially has been embedded so deeply in our culture that we all too often, all too often our response to disappointment with material goods is to go and shop some more. Here we might be instructed by people who live in the two-thirds world. Rarely I've spoken with people who have gone on mission trips and spent time who, with pe- people who are materially poorer um, and not heard feedback about how humbled they've been by the generosity of these native people. Perhaps maybe those who are poor and less insulated from de- are less insulated from death. Maybe they have fewer illusions about the efficacy of material goods that they might save and transform us. But back in the first world, money is often the cultural elephant in the room. We know that material abundance is not enough. But we still over, we still struggle to overcome the seduction of possessions. Despite cultural messages that constantly tell us the opposite. The real question here is not, is material abundance bad? But rather, is material abundance sufficient to meet the weight of meaning, significance, and joy that we all seek? Can our wealth secure a degree of comfort? Sure, sure it can. 
Can it grant us confidence that we are worthy of love and honour and in right relationship with God and neighbour? Um, no, no, it doesn't do that so well. Only as we recognise that the gifts of ultimate worth, dignity, meaning and relationship are exactly just that, gifts. Gifts offered freely by God can we hope to place our relative wealth in perspective and be generous with it towards others? Recently, I actually came across this really cool article. I was actually surprised that they could map out this concept. The the name of the article was Meaning is Healthier Than Happiness. The results presented in the article were trying to look at um, how the body at a genetic level responds to feelings of happiness and meaning. Researchers found that people who are happy but have little or no sense of meaning in their lives, this is uh, people who are just here to party, have the same gene expression patterns as people who are responding to and um, chronic adversity. That is, that the bodies of these happy people are preparing them bacterial threats by activating a pro-inflammatory response. Chronic inflammation, of course, is associated with things like heart disease and and, and various kinds of cancer. So the researchers note that meaning and happiness can actually overlap. It is possible to be both happy and have a sense of meaning in life. But what was really interesting is that people who expressed a sense of meaning but very little happiness still reaped the same health benefits as those who had, uh, who were both happy and held meaning. So it would seem that according to this study that meaning is healthier for you than, than happiness. To get a better handle on this, probably need to understand the differences between happiness and meaning. Happiness is a sense of feeling good about life, where meaning is about finding a higher purpose in the ups and the downs of life. Happiness is also associated with taking. In other words, we find happiness when uh, our, our own needs are met. Whereas meaning is associated with giving. In other words, we find a sense of meaning when we are able to sacrifice on behalf of somebody else. So they say that money can't buy happiness, but probably it's more accurate to say that money can't buy meaning. We've all had the pleasure of feeling good when we buy something for ourselves, whether it's big or or small. It feels good to buy our favourite food or a new outfit or a pair of shoes or a fine piece for our collection. Buying something feels good and it can make us happy, but that feeling of happiness is very fleeting. A sense of meaning, on the other hand, is much more enduring because humans have a sense of capacity to make meaning in both good and bad situations. Even in times of suffering, it is possible for us to live with a sense of meaning 
So whether it's psychological or physical, in the end, seeking meaning has a higher payoff than seeking happiness alone. Being a giver is better than being a taker, both for your own personal benefit and for the benefit of the society that you live in. If we take a closer look at the parable of the rich fool, we can see that Jesus also makes the distinction between the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of meaning. You are not the sum of what you have. Until you understand who you belong to and where wealth and blessings actually comes from, we cannot know our own true value. We are people who live in a constant state of blessing. Even the poor students in the room live way better than two-thirds of the planet. Therefore, our challenge is not if I'm being blessed, but to understand why God has blessed us and how we to respond to that blessing. Does this gift really inform us about who we are? Or does blessing actually tell us more about who God is? So, in conclusion, when the farmer's natural ambitions, which were a total surprise to him, by the way, far exceeded God's abundant blessing, the farmer was faced with a very similar choice that that we're faced with. The the abundance of the harvest not only filled his existing barns, which is to suggest that he had more than enough for himself, but he had more than he could ever use. But instead of planning how this excess might be shared with others, the farmer made plans to retain all of it for himself by building larger barns. The farmer's desire to retain this excess harvest stemmed from a misconception about how to view wealth and how to view the role of blessing. So what are we meant to do with a story like this? What will our response to God's abundant blessing be? Jesus wants to remind us of something that we all know too well but struggle to execute in our own lives. Wealth is just a mere commodity that God uses to exercise his desire to abundantly bless us. Wealth shows how good God is. Our challenge is, how can we be a blessing to others because of how God is already blessing us? The Christian life is a meaningful life. Jesus calls us not to just live for ourselves, but to live for others. Meaning in life comes with partnering with God, acting as his agent here on earth, which includes acknowledging that God is the giver of life and of meaning. To help you sort of think through some of these themes, I'd like to share a video with you which is put together by Thailand Insurance Group.
And I'm sure you'll see why once you've viewed it. Guys, if you just want to bow your heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, when we feel we have nothing, we beg for your blessing. And when we receive your blessing, we're so tempted to keep it for ourselves. Right now, in reflection of Jesus' message in this parable, we actually, we actually do feel blessed. We don't know half of what's going on in heaven and how you act on our behalf, but we know that you're constantly blessing us. As we move into the next room and discuss the themes of this parable, we ask that you be with us and that it might challenge us in the way that we view the role of blessing, view the role of wealth, and view our part in it. In Jesus' precious name, amen.